Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and thanks for tuning into this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Mary Woodward, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor Justice, and I'm coming to you from Manly, New South Wales, which I acknowledge is the land of the Gurungai people. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the Allied Health team working in South Australia's Youth Justice Services. I have joined with me today Senior Speech Pathologists Larissa Ashton and Melissa Saliba. Hello, Larissa. Hello. And hello, Melissa. Hi, Mary. I've also got Senior Occupational Therapist Luke Francis. Hello, Luke. Hi, thank you. And Psychologist Chris Galamatakis. Hello, Chris. Hi there. Now, this podcast has actually come about having been prompted by some of our members who have expressed an interest in working in the justice system and also asked for more information about how multidisciplinary teams work in that kind of environment. So I thought just as a starter, it might be helpful if we start off just with a very brief explanation of what each discipline's role is within the youth justice team. Maybe given this is a Speech Pathology Australia podcast, maybe we'll start with with speech pathologists. So Melissa and Larissa, I'm not sure how you want to answer it between you. Sure, I think I'll go first. It's Melissa here. Um, And then Larissa can take over from there. Um, So Always when I'm asked in social settings about what speech pathologists do uh, in youth justice, because no one ever really knows, um, I almost always start by setting the scene just to let them know that there is actually a really high level of often previously unidentified communication difficulty and other disabilities um, within the youth justice population. And that can be due to a range of reasons like developmental language disorder or language disorder in association with other comorbidities. Um, Often um, our young people experience complex trauma, which affects their brain development, and there can be acquired brain injury. And then there's just the environmental factors like reduced school engagement and learning opportunities. Um, So from there, um, like when we address the communication needs of young people in youth justice as speech pathologists, our role incorporates the di- like direct work with young people, but also indirect work um, with the care team and the services around them. Um, it's a relatively new space. So by working with the systems and the stakeholders, we help to raise awareness of communication needs and um, like ultimately try and increase the access to communication um, and improve outcomes. So... Ultimately, it's about identifying the needs of young people in helping the care team understand and respond to those needs and then setting up services so that those needs can be attended to in the long term as well. So we do typical speech pathology 
things like assessment and intervention of communication issues. Um, but we do lots and lots of co-working and advocacy and liaison with youth justice staff and other service providers like the Department of Child Protection, the NDIA and the service providers that are NDIS um, funded, uh, education department and even legal practitioners. Fantastic. Larissa? Um, just um, adding on what Melissa said, um, a big part of our role is often creating visual supports to assist with complex conversations. Um, often young people are being presented with a lot of new information. Um, and so we'll support colleagues um, and external agencies either creating easy English visual aids that might explain something, for instance, explaining what FASD is and how it's assessed, um, or actually sitting in on a joint session and using sketch noting to sort of draw out explanations for young people in a way that they can access it, um, given, you know, their language difficulties and often very low literacy. So it sounds like you do a lot of sort of supporting the communication that the young people might have with with other, um, whether they're youth officers or lawyers or other um, allied health professionals. Absolutely. And we've been really thankful that that's extended beyond colleagues to yeah, external agencies such as legal practitioners, um, NDIS server, service providers and mm. such, so that we're able to support young people to understand the processes, which are really, really challenging sometimes. Yes, they'd be challenging for any of us, let alone someone with communication needs. Absolutely. Um, we also work with our multidisciplinary colleagues um, assisting with behaviour support. Um, so that's primarily within the custodial environment. Um, and that's really important so that young people's communication needs are being incorporated when they're um, developing a functional hypothesis and strategies. Um, so recently I've been involved with our enhanced support team to create some talking mats um, to help young people to identify their own behaviour triggers and also strategies that they find helpful, which can then be used to implement that behaviour support within the custodial environment. Fantastic. Um, I've also created visual aids to help explain the behaviour support process to young people um, to sort of understand what consequences for good behaviour are as well as consequences for doing the wrong thing. So helping them to engage um, in... in other really important aspects of their time in youth custody. Absolutely. Um, at times we have acted as a communication support person um, in ins uh, legal instances such as in court, in discussion with um, solicitors, um, as well as discussions with their case managers about their legal processes. Um, and again, we use a lot of those visual strategies such as sketch noting, um, talking mats, writing down keywords, etc. And so that would be, I suppose, in a in a role a bit similar to some of the other jurisdictions have have an intermediary role that in most of the other Australian jurisdictions isn't um, uh, young, young defendants aren't eligible for it. But South Australia's program is slightly different. So it would be through that program that you're providing that kind of assistance. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So um, we're not called an intermediary in no. South Australia. We're called a communication partner, but the same thing. So um, we've been able to sit in court with young people to support them 
Um, and I think particularly support that discussion afterwards because often there's a whole lot of talking and they don't get a lot of opportunity to process or understand. So it's been really helpful to be able to talk to them about what happened in court. Absolutely. It's a very valuable role. I'm going to move to Chris. Uh, Chris, as a psychologist, I my my sense is that psychology is far... Um, far more well-established discipline in youth justice. And um, so people will be a lot more familiar, I think, with what the role of a psychologist is in youth justice services. Um, So I certainly want to pick your brains about your experiences as new allied health disciplines have have emerged in the youth justice context. But but I suppose, first of all, um, it'd be really interesting to hear from you a little bit about what, what you feel is the psychology role in youth justice. Of course, yeah. So within youth justice, um, the role of psychologists is actually quite broad and um, a big part of that is what I guess um, everyone would expect from a psychologist in terms of mental health support um, and intervention. Um, But I guess the three key tenets of our role is assessment, intervention, and then um, overall advocacy and working with um, other disciplines to help young people get the supports they need both whilst they're within custody and once they return to the community. So advocacy so, for the young people? Yes. Yes. Um, a lot of the time, along with our speeches and our OTs, we're, we're the ones doing the um, NGIS supports and getting those prepared and helping mm. the young person to understand what exact supports they need. Um, and that comes from the process of, number one, just working with that young person, but the assessments that we complete with them. Um, it, one part of our role that I guess, well, the key part of our role is criminogenic intervention. So helping to really identify and respond to those criminogenic needs. That, so just um, for people who may not be as familiar with um, some of the, the terms that are used in, in justice services, do you want to explain just briefly what we mean by criminogenic? Yeah. So that is looking at the factors that increase the likelihood of someone engaging in offending behaviour or crimes um, and helping not only for young people to gain insight into those factors that contribute to their offending behaviour, but also um, seeing where we can support them to reduce those behaviours. And how, I don't know exactly when you joined um, South Australia Youth Justice Services, but so I don't know if that was before or after um, OTs and speeches came on board, but how, how has your experience been with um, sort of how the roles have, have developed um, it can all, it can sometimes be challenging for for well established professions when new new professions come on board. So, what's your experience been? Well, I, I guess I've always um, worked alongside our speech pathologists and our occupational therapists. I've been in the role for about a year now, okay. so um, speech pathology and occupational therapy were really well established by the yeah. time I entered. <laughs> okay, um, Mary, it's Luke here. Um, I'm probably the the one member of the team that has been around pre and post the multi-D team. So it's something that I might be able to to speak to a little bit as well. Oh, so that's that's really interesting because in a lot of youth justice services in Australia, they don't have, they have psychologists, but they don't have OTs or speech as part of the, the, so that's really interesting that in your service, OTs was there, OTs were there first. (laughs) Uh, uh, Technically we weren't. Um, So I was there but not in an OT clinical role. So I've, I was here for about four years with Youth Justice in a different non-OT role prior right. to um, us creating the multi-D team. So I was part of that process of sort of advocating for and, and 
developing the team. So I've sort of been able to witness the changes in how services have been provided um, differently prior to and then sort of after a multi-D service was developed. And in particular, I think I've probably seen a really marked change in how communication and speech-related needs are being addressed across the board. There's been a huge change in the last few years since Melissa and Larissa have come on board. From, from your perspective, because it's all very well, you know, speech pathologists were always going to say that we have a big impact. <laughs> but yeah. um, from, from your perspective, what kind of impact has that had on, on the young people or on other aspects of the service? I think in terms of just the, the inherent understanding of the importance of communication and not just assuming that talking is communication, but that element of understanding and being able to find the right words and those sorts of things um, and how critical that is to our young people and also how prevalent those needs are among the population that um, the work that locally Melissa and Larissa have been doing has been able to paint a very um, sort of distinct picture of, of what the needs are mm. um, and then also be able to help provide staff with some skills and understanding to be able to to address those communication-related needs as well um, in terms of the use of visual aids and visual techniques when, when speaking with young people um, almost didn't exist, you know, five, ten years ago, um, yeah. and now it's commonplace to see people use that, even people who aren't health professionals uh, using those sort of techniques quite That's frequently. Fantastic. So before we get into a little bit more about kind of the, that collaboration and, and joint working, um, I guess it would, it would be quite helpful to hear a little bit more about the OT role, Luke. Yeah, sure. Um, and probably a lot of your listeners are reasonably well versed with OT, um, given that OTs and speech pathologists tend to work in you know, lots of different areas, tend to work pretty closely um, and, and often will work alongside of each other and, and joint sessions, those sorts of things. Um, and so the OT role here in youth justice is is quite similar. The OT as a definition, uh, as a as a profession, is really sort of defined by the process that we go through, rather than the sort of population that we're working with. So that doesn't change too much. So we, in this space, I do a lot of work with identifying functional needs, um, in particular for NDIS access requests. Um, looking at uh, sort of trying to promote independent skills as much as possible and, and life skills. Um, often we've, we're working with young people that have had services involved throughout their lives. They've had long-standing difficulties um, and they've often got well-meaning support workers and support services that often do a lot for them rather than doing with them and they lose that opportunity to, to develop those skills throughout mm. sort of their formative lives formative years and very similar to what Melissa and Larissa have already sort of talked about in terms of the role of, of speech pathology. Um, I also tend to do a bit of quite a bit of advocacy and sort of consultancy work with other staff and professionals um, to try and sort of provide I guess an OT or a functional lens in complex cases or situations and also working in terms of behaviour support plans. Um, often it's OTs tend to be involved from a sort of sensory processing 
perspective and sort of providing that sort of input to those behaviour support plans as well. Fantastic. You, you mentioned obviously taking a very functional approach and um, I guess one, one of the, the challenges for speech pathologists working in a custodial setting is sometimes that sort of practising um, in kind of real life everyday situations can be difficult when the young people don't necessarily have access to to the same range of um of um environments and um communication partners as they would if they weren't in custody so i'm just wondering how how ot's go about providing functional outcomes and interventions etc on activities of daily living when they're in a secure setting to be honest it's, it's something that we're still grappling with and we're mm. still trying to develop here that um, for those exact reasons that you mentioned that I mean OT as a profession is is predicated on this idea of of developing independence through doing a task in the environment that you would do it on a day-to-day basis and and obviously in a custodial setting we're just not able to do that and the sort of safety and security focus of the custodial environment also means that we often can't do certain tasks that we would do in the community um, or if we did try to do it it would be in such a false environment that it's it's almost sort of renders it a bit useless mm. anyway in some ways mm. um, so um, Sue Maney is another occupational therapist who's worked here with our team um, and has just recently moved into our enhanced support services team and and she's had a really um, sort of focus on the development of an independent living skills program within the custodial setting to so we can look at those skills more um, with a more sort of focused lens, I guess, to try and develop those functional skills while people are here in custody. And, and probably something that people in other jurisdictions face in, as well is that often our young people are not necessarily in custody for a long period of time. They yeah. come and they go quite frequently even for yeah. short periods of time so it's really difficult to sort of um, develop those skills that can often take months or even years to develop in the community. Mm. And I suppose I it- join in here for a second Mary? Sure. Um, it's Melissa. I just wanted to point out that we also work with young people in the community as well as the custodial setting so um, sometimes there can be opportunity in the community to to do some functional work like for example I've been in um, a bank with a young person who needed to set up an account or if you know ordering food at McDonald's but it also depends on what those goals are in the first place and the other point I'd like to make is um, I think a lot of our work is linking young people into their long longer term therapists that they might have access through for example through the NDIA so um, then it's it's better rather than having like um, inconsistent work with across different therapists if they if we know they've got a a good plan with some support there then we could link them into them and they can do the community work if that makes sense yeah absolutely thank you Mm. for that um just another sort of related question I suppose Luke and I'm sure that that speech pathologists and psychologists will have similar challenges in a way. Um, 
thinking from the sensory perspective, um, as, you, as you say, you, know, you, you do a lot of sensory work, and I understand that you've um, recently been developing a sensory framework for the service. How do you overcome the challenges of of um, the restrictions to what materials and resources young people might be able to access for, for risk um, and security reasons? I'm not sure we have overcome them yet. Um, <laughs> we're trying very hard. But mm. um, I think, yeah, for, for reasons that we've sort of already touched on, obviously, the nature of the custodial environment is very safety and security focused for obvious reasons. That staff safety is obviously paramount. Young people's safety is obviously also a paramount. Um, and so, yeah, as you said, we're we're in the closing stages of sort of developing a, a sensory and environmental framework um, for the custodial setting here. And so as part of that process, we've actually purchased a, a quite an extensive sensory library, um, but we're still working on getting all of those things that we've, um, we've purchased past security and to allow us to use them in a, in a therapeutic setting. Um, so there's definitely different schools of thought and different ideologies, I guess, in the custodial setting in terms of, from, a, from an allied health perspective, obviously we come from a very therapeutic perspective um, where youth workers or um, others who are working with young people on a day-to-day -day basis might have more of that sort of safety and security focus. And it's not to say one is right and one is wrong, that we just have to strike a, a balance mm -hmm. between the two and we're Coming still really together working to figure on, it out. <laughs> on finding that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. That we're also often having conversations about how we can, how the sort of therapeutic needs can fit alongside of that operational needs as well in terms of um, can therapeutic staff um, go through particular operational-based training so that we can effectively take the, the place of an operational staff member to allow us more freedom to do um, therapeutic tasks or, or assessments in the custodial setting without needing to be observed by multiple operational staff as well yeah. to try and sort of help create that, that therapeutic setting rather than sort of yeah, young people feeling like they're being watched by multiple people sort of thing. And again, so I think something, that, again, that's something that operationally is different in different jurisdictions. Um, I think so, yeah, different places have different ratios and yeah I, I believe that in certain jurisdictions therapeutic staff are able to be a yes. bit more flexible than we are here yes absolutely um, but here in South Australia um, a young person to be taken out of the unit has to be observed by two operational staff regardless of whether or not a therapist is is present yeah. so it does create some challenges I'm sure um, I will just add on what Luke said as well. Um, certainly balancing our recommendations from a disability perspective with the um, the secure setting um, security kind of recommendations can be really tricky. Like, for instance, a, you know, a go-to speech pathologist um, visual schedule laminated mm. with blue tack or whatever mm. um, isn't generally allowed in the secure setting um, where laminated tools can be potentially used as a weapon yeah. and blue tack it can be a bit of an issue because it can block up key um i think um locks on doors as yes. well as um yeah. cover cameras and stuff yeah. 
So we've had to really be flexible with some of our recommendations and probably compromise on some of the things that we'd love to see, um, but we know that they're not realistic within that setting. I'm sure you get through a lot of that indestructible paper, which was my godsend when working in secure settings. <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. Um, okay, thank you. Thanks for adding that, Larissa. Um, we've already mentioned, obviously, very briefly, some of the work that the speeches have been doing around communication accessibility. And um, Luke, we mentioned that you've done a, a sensory framework. I'm sure, hopefully, if we have time, we might be able to explore that a bit more. And um, I just want to throw to Chris if I can, um, particularly thinking around sort of capacity building and, and collaboration with the operational staff, wondering about sort of any particular training or anything that, that yes. from a psychology perspective you do that, that might um, aid the, the service to the young yes, people? Yes, I guess um, first and foremost, we're, we're trying our best, the, the whole team really, to be as present as we can be um, down in the unit space to be able to work with staff to um, not only understand um, more broadly um, some of the ways to, in which it would be useful to work with young people, um, but we also have um, that really useful understanding that a lot of staff might not have about the specific histories um, or needs of each of the young person that we might work with um, ourselves. So being able to have that presence on the unit has been really useful. Um, I, I think guess the just, most just recent... to jump in there, I think um, mm -hmm. we're, we're always advocating for the the benefits of um, speech pathologists, but it would be the same would apply to any allied health, I think, of actually being embedded in the teams that, that mm -hmm. they're working with as opposed to a consultation model. Um, and I think yes. that you've just spoken to that beautifully in terms of having that presence, whereas if you were a con consultant and just sort of popping in to deliver a training and popping out again, mm -hmm. that, that's far more of a challenge, um, I think. Yeah, I think um, we've acknowledged before with staff where they have a the best understanding of the young person because they're there 24 7 and they Absolutely. see them at night when we're at home um and then we come with the understanding of their history and maybe some more of their of their needs so being able to put those two things together is really useful it's probably not different to the conversations we often have as speech pathologists and as clinicians with parents about them being the expert on their child mm -hmm. um but we have some additional information to support them yeah. and so i guess in a more um structured way most recently is um, as a YJS team. So um, with all of our disciplines together, we've been delivering trauma-informed practice training to our operational staff throughout the school holidays, um, which has been a really great initiative where we've um, had staff come in before their shifts um, and in some sort of a rotating roster between our team, we've delivered training about what trauma really is and helping people to understand the way that trauma might impact not only um, brain development specifically, but child development. And, and that's including um, young people's language communication needs to mm. hopefully, um, although many youth workers or operational staff might have some sort of awareness of it, it's about bringing it back to the forefront of their mind. Mm. Um, and again, opening up the conversation to encourage um, as best of a collaboration between the operational and the clinical side of um, that centre. Fantastic. That, that sounds like such a valuable... Um, initiative. Luke, Melissa, Larissa, do you want? Is there anything that you want to add about some of the the sort of specific projects or activities that that you've been working on recently? Um, I touched quickly on um, the fact that we make a lot of youth friendly documents for young people. Um, that's developed started off as something that we were doing kind of ad hoc when we were being requested by colleagues, but. 
um, Melissa and I have been working on the Enhancing Communication Access Project for about 12 months now, which um, has been quite a rigorous process in modifying some of the key information that young people get into what we're calling a youth-friendly document sort of thing. So some of the examples are the consent to share information, um, the home detention bracelet directions and the mandate and bail conditions. Um, and, for instance, the mandate and bail conditions, um, when young people go to court, um, they'll either, they may be released on bail or they may get a mandate um, with a supervision order. Um, there tend to be a lot of conditions attached to them, sometimes 15, sometimes 20, wow. um, that are in very jargonistic terminology, yeah. um, printed on in very small font mm. on a grainy piece of paper um, that then they're expected to understand and abide by. So we'll often see young people returning to custody because they've breached these conditions. Um, so by creating these youth-friendly versions explain, that can be editable, that can explain all the conditions to young people, um, it means that they're able to do the right thing and hopefully stay out of custody. Wonderful. Thank you, Larissa. And from an OT perspective, um, we obviously touched on the sensory and environmental framework. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, really broadly, that it's a piece of work that we've been working on over the last sort of 18 months in partnership with academics from the University of South Australia um, to effectively look at um, making a sort of broad sweep of recommendations to look at how we can adapt uh, the environment within the custodial setting to be uh, to more sort of universally proactively address sensory processing needs of young people. Um, we're aware that around a third of young people have significant sensory processing difficulties in youth justice custodial settings. Um, and so looking at those universal environmental adaptations that we can recommend. And then within those also looking at sort of personalized, individualized plans that we can create for young people once we understand their needs. Um, and then the sort of the five principles that underpin the day-to-day -day operationalization as a framework in terms of the need for individualized approaches, um, acknowledging and understanding how the well-being of young people and the well-being of staff feed off of one another um, managing the, the little things and, and the accumulated stresses that, that impact behaviour of young people, um, providing young people and the staff with opportunities to offload their accumulated stresses, and also acknowledging that staff form the foundation of, of any framework and any work that we do. So we need to be able to support the staff through, through training, through emotional and mental health support, um, and also through sort of a departmental level in terms of um, providing really clear, unambiguous guiding principles to promote consistency across staffing lines and individuals as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Luke. Something that, that has come up a, a few times um, through the conversation so far has been about sort of joint working and um, working both with each other and also with the operational staff and the staff who are with the young people 24-7. Just wondering how how all of that works in practice, and you know any any benefits, any challenges, etc. I'll open it up to anybody, any of you, me. <laughs> Can I start there? It's Melissa here. I just I can't overstate how valuable it is to work in a multidisciplinary team in this setting. Um, 
I like not just from a personal learning perspective, but obviously it's all about the outcomes for the young people. Um, I just think the richness that you get from working across disciplines is is huge. Um, we, you know, there can be in an organised way working collaboratively, such as doing assessments and um, uh, like multidisciplinary team assessments. Um, but there's also a lot of informal conversations that occur at our desks or uh, quick consultations, um, you know, there's the meetings that we have to discuss clients and having all of those discipline, disciplinary lenses around the table um, really helps a full understanding of the needs of the young person and um, like where to go um, with planning ahead for them as well. Um, that's, yeah, that's what I wanted to say about that. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> And yeah, I sort of touched earlier on on the, the sort of changes that I've seen, mm. the positive changes that I've seen over the last couple of years since um, Larissa and Melissa have been part of the team, and we've had a sort of true multi D approach. Um, and just the other day, I was walking past the general manager's office of the centre, and um, the assistant general manager was in there. He'd called me in that he was working on a visual that was going up on all of the, the units to help them understand the day-to-day -day routines. Um, and I know that five years ago that would never have happened, but that's all been down. And to that's the something that he was working done. on himself. It wasn't something that he yeah, was... Yeah, off his own back. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, he was something that he was taking on himself and was had obviously spent quite a considerable amount of time developing it. Um, and so and this, is, this is something that Melissa and I had input into, but it was certainly um, his initiative and the content yeah. was based on yeah, what he came yeah, up and, with. Yeah, and I think that and it's, it's, it's work that's being done locally and not to take away from the great work that Larissa and Melissa have been doing, but it's also important to acknowledge that there's lots of other work being done in other jurisdictions throughout Australia as well that, that we've been able to piggyback off from a multi-D perspective here as well, that without work that's being done in by Telethon Kids in WA and, and Stella Martin and the team in Queensland and work you yourself have done, Mary, that we would never have got the multi-D team across the line here mm. in South Australia without that work being done. Um, so I think in terms of sort of the benefits of working together that we obviously we work together really well here locally, but also there's a growing awareness that we need to work together as allied health teams across the country and probably more broadly as well, because there is so much being learned from other areas and often it's easier to advocate um, if there's other people doing similar work in other places as well. So it's becoming really important for multi-D teams across the country to be working together and collaborating as well. Absolutely. And Chris, I, I realise that you're relatively new to the role. Um, how, how do you think you and you know, psychologists fit in with to the to the multidisciplinary team? Well, uh, we were having this conversation earlier about um, the, how important the speech pathologists have been in terms of our psychologists, our um, intervention, and our therapeutic work because so much of psychology is very language heavy. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to adapt a lot of the resources that we use both both in our assessments and our intervention have been probably the most important, I guess, collaboration that we've had with our speech pathologists. Um, I think specifically about a lot of our mental health assessments. Um, they're quite wordy um, and jargony um, as well. So 
it's not really as simple as what we might do in maybe an adult mental health setting where people are just given a questionnaire or um, a set of assessments and expected to complete them. It just doesn't work that way. Um, I would argue it shouldn't work that way in adult mental health either, but that's, exactly another, right. that's another conversation. <laughs> and that's the thing. I guess once, and I've worked um, within a few other government sectors actually, where this there might be some speech pathologists, but the collaboration isn't as strong. And like yeah. coming into this team where collaboration is a daily natural part of the work, it makes you get a bit fearful and, and wonder about when we why we weren't doing these for all people that we're working with. I think reflecting on on um, our previous work is an ongoing thing. You know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, oh, my goodness, I wish I knew that and had done something differently yes. 10 years yes. ago. And I, but I think that's just part of growing as a clinician. Mm-hmm. And I guess like a, a good example I think of is um, we I had a young person that I was working with late last year um, and we wanted to do some assessment, um, some mental health assessment, and the available assessments were quite again, wordy um, and really difficult to follow. And when I first started presenting some of these questions to um, this young person, I first thought, oh, gosh, they're saying no to everything. Maybe our our um, formulation was completely wrong. Um, so we kind of went back and re- redid that assessment in a completely different way where it was no longer validated against norms. So it wasn't going to give us a specific score that we can compare to other people. But by being able to present the information in a much easier to understand way, um, with visuals accompanying each item, um, we actually got such an important, um, rich amount of information about this young person um, and some specific mental health concerns that did end up helping a referral to some more services. So I think it's been a really good, um, it's really provided a lot of insight into the way in which, like the, the role that speech pathologists play in helping us to adapt these assessments um, leading to quite literally better outcomes for our young people. And I can certainly observe that um, Chris and the other psychologists are often creating kind of visual tools to support their assessments and to support their interventions, like a visual five-point scale to um, look at their regulation and everything. And it's really, really exciting to think about, to see people thinking about communication accessibility off their own back straight away without necessarily needing that support or that Mm. suggestion from speech pathology. And I have no doubt at all. It's wonderful hearing what fantastic impact um, Melissa and Larissa have had as speech pathologists in the service, but I'm I'm sure that their practice has also been massively enhanced by um, having such joint, such fantastic joint working with OT and psych. Um, just, just before we finish, um, I just want to pick up on something that you said, Luke, around um, sort of collaborating with other uh, with, with allied health teams in other um, jurisdictions, but also sort of advocating for expansion of services. And because um, we know that allied health, especially speech pathology and OT, but in in some areas also psychology, are, are still underrecognised in many justice services here in Australia. Um, and we've seen examples of of the the value when there are services in place. So I'm just wondering how how you would all sell your, sell yourselves, sell your roles to senior management or to um, other jurisdictions who might be listening who don't have um, the, the multidisciplinary services that South Australia does. Any insight you can give, you can share? I think that um, once people 
begin understanding the prevalence of need across the board for for allied health related needs and disability related needs um, it's becoming harder and harder to ignore um, again falling back on work that's being done in other spaces and one of the first um, pieces of work that we did as a multidisciplinary team when our team was still a pilot project was um, doing a disability screening project where we assessed as many young people as we could that were here in custody at the time with all three disciplines in the team. And through that piece of work, we were able to identify a number of sort of key findings and um, in terms of those prevalence of need and how broad they were. The screening project found that nine out of 10 young people that were assessed didn't meet the criterion on the self five screener. Um, and then there was other needs relating to nine out of 10 uh, young people were outside of average range of IQ. And also that's how we discovered that more than a third of young people had significant sensory processing needs. And once we were able to sort of set that precedent or, or build that awareness of, of the breadth of needs in the population, um, it really helped us to be able to sort of solidify our place within the youth justice landscape locally um, but again I think that it, it, it is really important to be able to, to to learn off of what's being done in other places other jurisdictions and and share that knowledge because again going back probably five years um, disability really wasn't discussed in youth justice world really at all um, so we've come a long way in a really short period of time because of the work that's being done all over the place. Um, and so now it is acknowledged and, and even in the last few years from an OT perspective, I've watched how the conversation has changed from one or two voices talking about um, communication nationally to now the most recent Youth Justice Conference. We had judges and lawyers and um, other professions in their presentations talking about the importance of communication and it's just becoming much more prevalent um, and so with that sort of groundswell it's becoming easier for us to advocate for our positions but also it's helping other jurisdictions that are still trying to build that multi-d approach and i know that there's other spaces out there that are advocating for ot and those sorts of things and uh, and i've been able to sort of help where i can th with that um, but it, it is always comes back to money, unfortunately, um, and funding and FTE and those sorts of things. And it's probably, it often comes back to a, you know, if the money's used for allied health, it's not used in another space. So it's being able to sort of prioritize the work and being selfish for the work that we do um, and trying to put forward how important that is and the, the potential outcomes that can have. Just a quick comment. Um, as Luke mentioned earlier, we've really noticed that buy-in from senior management. Um, so Luke gave the example of the assistant general manager of our custodial setting um, was developing the rules and guidelines for young people, um, you know, and he was seeking our input regularly to help make that information as accessible as possible. Um, other examples are when we've been sought out to create documents related to COVID, for instance, rapid antigen test directions to help young people comply with those processes. Um, we also um, helped develop the Youth Justice State Plan, um, which is something that the organisation is working towards, but 
it's fantastic that leadership are thinking about how we can communicate this, this information to young people as well. Um, so, you know, we've really noticed a shift in the last few years um, in the way people are considering our role and hope, hopefully we can see the same move for other jurisdictions mm-hmm. as well. And, and sharing your experiences in ways like this is going to be really helpful too. So thank you for that. Mary, can I just add something as well? The, in terms of the, that selling role to senior management mm. and advocating for allied health role, the one thing that I've probably learned is that we often we need to speak the language that senior management and leadership and executive leadership want to hear and what what is meaningful to them. So often we can talk about disability needs and, and outcomes, but what really matters from a sort of departmental level often is about the incident levels and, and reducing use of seclusion restraint um, and those sorts of, you know, staff retention, um, use of staff sick leave, all of those sorts of factors are, are more arguably more important. And so the more that we can link the allied health roles to outcomes that relate to those things that, that matter to those who make those decisions, the better off we are long term as well. Mm. So if we can mm. show the importance of communication on uh, young people well-being and how that then impacts fewer incidents and lower levels of violence, then that's what's going to be um, noticed. Um, mm. And the more data that we we can probably collate re- regarding to that, um, then the, the easier our job to advocate becomes as well. That's a really good point. Thanks, Luke. We could talk all day, and unfortunately, unfortunately we can't. Um, so we will have to wrap up now. But Melissa, Larissa, Luke and Chris, thank you so much for speaking with me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with another Speak Up conversation next week. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.